Welcome to the Health Deli, your local stop for a fresh take on community health topics. Come on in, grab a number, and let the guys behind the counter, Mark, Ben, and Mike, tell you about today's specials. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another fantastic episode of The Health Deli. Uh, Today, we are actually going to talk about a pretty heavy topic. Uh, We're talking about the opioid epidemic, uh, specifically in the United States. And so I do want to, before we get into, you know, introductions, thank two of our listeners who actually asked us to talk about this topic. So there was Gabby and, sorry, I'm probably going to mispronounce your last name, Saruti, uh, who asked us to talk specifically about opioid prescribing in the United States. And then also Eric Finn, who was asking us just about uh, naloxone becoming over the counter, which is something that recently just happened. And so we thought, hey, here's a great chance for us to talk about, you know, the history of opioid use in the United States. And then also what we're currently doing to try and kind of combat the opioid epidemic. So it should be a really good episode. Uh, today, I am joined by the sometimes fantastic Mike Klepser. Hello. And, you know, when you said a heavy episode, I thought we were going to be talking about obesity. We're going to need those jokes, Mike, because it's going to get, there's some, definitely some heavy, heavy things that we're going to be chatting about. Uh, but I am more excited to introduce a, a special guest that we have today, and it is Dr. Samantha Patton. How are you doing today, Sam? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Nice. I'm glad to hear it. And so I know you don't know Sam. Uh, Sam is a friend of mine. So I'm just going to introduce you to Sam and uh, as well as our audience, Mike. Uh, So Sam, uh, Dr. Samantha Patton, uh, she is a pain and substance use disorder, a clinical pharmacy practitioner at Vision 20 of the Clinical Resource Hub Telepain Service. Uh, She graduated from UNC Chapel Hill Eichmann School of Pharmacy and completed her PGY-1 and PGY-2 psych uh, pharmacy residency at the Boise VA Medical Center, which is actually where we met. Uh, Dr. Patton uh, primarily focuses on expanding access to care in rural underserved patients with chronic pain, mental health, or substance use disorders. Uh, She currently practices with multiple interdisciplinary telemedicine teams to provide high-quality, person-centered, multimodal care for veterans throughout the Pacific Northwest. Uh, She also enjoys precepting pharmacy residents via telehealth and is passionate about training the next generation of clinicians to care for this vulnerable population. So that's kind of just a brief introduction to Sam. Do you have anything else you want to tell the audience about you? Yeah, thank you. I guess I'll just add, since I work for the VA, um, it's to disclose that the views and opinions expressed here are mine and do (laughs) not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any agency of the United States government, including the Department of Veterans Affairs. Yeah, that's exactly right. I work in telehealth, so I serve the Pacific Northwest, but I'm coming talking to you today from North Carolina. Nice. That's awesome. And and telemedicine is something we also need to do an episode on, Mike. That's a huge up and coming thing right now. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, the telemedicine, but really it's more of the virtual medicine. People think telemedicine, Mm -hmm. you know, the phones, but a lot of it, you know, especially over the pandemic's transition to a lot of the virtual you know, visits and stuff like that. So that'd be fascinating. Mm-hmm. And and Sam, you know, it's uh, a pleasure to meet you. I will say you seem way more qualified uh, than somebody who would usually be on this podcast. So um, <laughs> uh, pre- appreciate you bringing a little bit of class uh, to the digs here. Indeed. Indeed. We appreciate it. Um, so yeah, maybe depending on how well you do today, Sam, we might have you back on for telemedicine. So got to bring your A game if you want to come back. <laughs> All right. I'll be in touch. Yeah. So um, I guess before we get into stuff, because again, this is going to be a pretty heavy episode. Uh, do you have any fun facts you want to share with us, Sam? Things you like to do, hobbies? I see some crutches behind you. So I don't know if you want to tell us any <laughs> stories or anything like that before we get into it. 
Yeah, I mean, usually I'm very active. I enjoy golfing and usually chasing around my six-year-old puppy. Um, but in more uh, recent days, I am <laughs> I'm quite sedentary. Um, I'm recovering from an ankle injury from snowboarding. So I'm doing things like podcasts with my friends. You wow. know, Sam, I'll, I'll say that I also am sedentary, but that's a lifestyle choice. <laughs> I see. A little different. Yes. Also, a quick side note. I don't think at six years old, your dog is a puppy anymore. Is that a weird thing to say? Am I going to get canceled my, for that? My, my dog is 12 and I still refer to her as my little puppy. Okay. Yeah. She identifies as a puppy. Oh, okay. Sure. Cool. Then that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Sam. Uh, again, one reason we wanted to bring Sam on this podcast is because Mike and I are not experts in opioid use. We are not experts in pain management. We are not experts in substance use disorder. And this is a very serious topic that we wanted to give really serious credence to. And so we wanted to bring someone in that was an expert that does this every day. And so Sam, if we say something offensive, if we say something that we, that is incorrect, please do not hesitate to correct us, especially if it's Mike. Yeah, just the incorrect. <laughs> I mean, if she corrects everything that we say that's offensive, then we're never going to get through this. That's true. That's true. But that's, that's also- true. Should I, should I comment on the things said already? Or- uh, no. Let's just start from scratch. Yeah, we only <laughs> okay, have a certain fair. amount of time. <laughs> okay, cool. So just to make sure everybody's on the same page, I want to give everyone just an introduction to like what opioids are and like why this is something we want to talk about. So opioids are essentially a class of medications that activate our opioid receptors in our nerves in our brain. And so this does a variety of different things, uh, but one of them is it kind of changes how we feel and how we interpret pain. And so these are often used as kind of painkiller type medications to decrease the pain that people feel. Uh, but it also does cause a kind of euphoria or pleasurable feeling as well. So it does multiple different things. So it's kind of like me. Um, no, 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 no. You bring on pain oh. and decrease pleasure, Mike. So I'm the anti-opioid. Exactly. And, exactly. and then I cause diarrhea rather than constipation. Is that... <laughs> Mm, I'm not going to touch that one. <laughs> um, so, so that's what opioids are generally used for. And if we take too many opioids, so if we get too high of a dose, it can also affect your lungs. So it can decrease your breathing and can actually completely stop you from breathing altogether. But it's not necessarily, it doesn't occur at the level of the mm -hmm. lungs. It's a, you know, in your brain is where it depresses that drive, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Yep. Exactly right. And so that's the main issue here. If we take too many doses of your opioids, you get too high of a dose, your brain's going to tell your lungs that you don't need to breathe essentially, and then you'll stop breathing and potentially die. Um, Sam, it looks like you might want to say something about this. Do you have any? No, I mean, the, you're hitting it right on, right? Breathing, mm -hmm. usually a very involuntary process. You don't mm -hmm. have to think to do it, but right. Opioids without asking your permission, just stop you from people, stop you from breathing and mm -hmm. people go to bed and don't wake up. Right. It's really sad. Yeah. Which is incredibly tragic. And so just to give uh, the people at home some examples of what we're talking about when we say opioids, uh, Oxycontin is one of the big ones that's receiving a lot of uh, publicity, and we'll talk about why that is. Uh, the generic name of that is oxycodone, but also things like Vicodin, which has hydrocodone in it, and then also heroin as well would all be considered opioids. So is this morphine as well? Yep. Morphine would also be So one. I think a lot of people probably are familiar with, with morphine, so mm -hmm. kind of putting it in that yeah. you know, context. Okay. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so- one stat I want to share with everybody to, again, to really nail home how important this is. In the year 2020, so just three-ish years ago, 75% uh, of all drug overdose deaths in the United States involved an opioid. 75%. So this is a very big topic and pr 
probably most of our listeners, I know I fall into this category, know somebody or at least know of somebody that's been affected by the opioid epidemic. So this is a huge problem throughout the United States, a huge issue that we're trying to tackle. And that's why we wanted to talk about it today. So yeah, does I guess anyone have any additional thoughts about just opioids in general? So I know that you've talked in general about opioids, you know, and then you threw in together, you know, things that are prescription then with heroin Mm -hmm. as well. Where is the the big problem? And maybe that's a Sam question. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we talk about, you know, overdoses and stuff like that and addiction, is it mainly with the prescription based opioids or is it with the recreational? Good question. One opioid we didn't mention yet is um, in the news a lot lately, fentanyl. Mm -hmm. Um, So a very useful um, agent in surgeries, um, in pain in some areas created a long time ago. Um, But more recently, there's illicit fentanyl on the street Mm -hmm. and different derivatives of that. As much as like one sesame seed size is a hundred times more potent than morphine. So very lethal, very mm. dangerous. Um, so why is it a big thing? In, why is it a big thing in the street then? You know, why would you want to put something that that's that potent? Why would you want to use that recreationally? Mm. Mm. What a good question. I think we might get into that a little bit later. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. I don't read scripts. Uh, <laughs> so uh, no, that'd be great because I do know that. Um, you know, this is going to be surprising, Ben, but I used to have to teach the opioid reversal and stuff like that at the College of Pharmacy. Oh, really? And so I was familiar with a lot of the, you know, headlines mm-hmm. uh, about using carfentanil and lacing, you know, a lot of the medication. And carfentanil is kind of a derivative or a cousin of fentanyl. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they put it in the recreational drugs and then you see just mass overdoses in cities, mm-hmm. you know, in a short period of time when these, you know, contaminated uh, products come in. And I can tell you where I live, there was just a report a couple of weeks ago um, that there were 30 some odd overdoses that were related, you know, to one of these uh, contaminated batches of, um, mm-hmm. you know, I guess, recreational narcotics. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. at first, I'm really pleased to hear that your uh, that pharmacy school is teaching that because that's <laughs> one of the biggest missing things, right? It's missing in the education. Um, I'm really yeah, glad but the fact it. that they yeah. have a guy trained in infectious diseases, uh, historically teaching it maybe is not <laughs> a little I mean, different. potentially, but I mean, I trust yeah. you, Mike, I trust you to educate yourself before you teach people, but I mean, yeah. oh, go ahead, Sam. The, the most frustrating thing about the opioid epidemic is like an antidote exists. Mm-hmm. Um, the naloxone, I mean, I think we're, we're kind of already talking about it. We just have it not in the right hands at the right times. Um, yeah. and and right now, I think it's nature of being human is experimentation, you know, and, and kids are going to try different things. Um, you know, you tell someone not to touch a hot stove and then they're going to touch it <laughs> and then they might want to touch it again. Have you um, been the following problem, me around? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, now that hot stove on the first try is life threatening and deadly. And there are reports of kids trying an Adderall their friend gave them and finding mm-hmm. it's contaminated with fentanyl. And they're dead and it's nonsense and mm. we have to get naloxone out there. Yeah, it's unfortunately there's this topic is massive. So when I was preparing for this, Sam, you know, who's an expert in this was sending me all sorts of podcast episodes like, hey, you really need to listen to this, listen to this, all this really interesting stuff. And so I guess one other thing I do want to point out is we're not going to be able to do this topic, com- the complete justice that it needs in this episode. We're going to talk for maybe 30 to 40 minutes. But there are hours and hours worth of people talking about this topic. It is massive. Um, so, yeah, carfentanil, 
explicit use of kind of some of these opioids is huge. And I think that's something that we'll probably have to do an episode on in the future, really, because um, I was not planning on talking about it too much during this. Well, I'll show. shut up after this then so you can talk about what you're going to. But no, Sam, not- things like fentanyl and carfentanil, do they have more of an addicting potential? You know, do you get dependent on them much quicker? And it's my understanding that sometimes that's why they get laced into the recreational thing is because, you know, you get a you know, more euphoria, stronger connection, you mm-hmm. know, whatever it is. And then it's harder to stop. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, you know, the fact that, you know, these people have this level of chemistry knowledge and yet they're using it's like Breaking Bad. I've not seen that show, but am I, am I doing I mean, it? Hey, Forrest, Forrest, talk to me, talk to me, buddy. You saw Breaking Bad. Oh, I saw Breaking Bad. It's great. But what I realized, I learned two things. Chemistry, high school chemistry teachers can make really good meth and you don't use hydrochloric acid um, in a, what is it? A metal bathtub. Otherwise, it's, interesting. Otherwise it eats right through and all the remains of the dead people go spilling all over the place. Ah. It was like episode one or two. Okay. So, anyway, I'm I'm done uh, <laughs> in more ways than one. No. <laughs> Interesting I, I do, topic. I do like your point. You're right. Anything quicker, faster highs, uh, likely mm-hmm. more potential for abuse. Also has a very fast offset. And so withdrawal symptoms can mm-hmm. be severe. So right, further perpetuating continued use. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Okay, cool. So I think that was a good kind of introduction to, you know, why this is something we should be talking about, right? This is something that affects a lot of people. It is very deadly and there's the rabbit hole goes incredibly deep as Mike is kind of alluding to. So one thing I wanted to do is just talk about how we got here. Cause at least when I'm thinking about how we, you know, try and solve the problem that we have, we would need to come, need to know where we came from. And so I'm going to just kind of give a hopefully fairly brief history of opioid use in the United States and also our perceptions of pain in the United States. And so please, Sam, stop me if you have any comments or corrections about anything. Mike, I guess you can also stop me. Yeah, (laughs) Mike, keep quiet. Got it. Um, But feel free to just chime in with any thoughts you have. I got lots of thoughts right now. Okay, perfect, perfect. None related to this. Less perfect, less perfect. (laughs) Okay, so the first kind of area that we're going to touch on is kind of before 1800. So like the late 1700s. So to give everyone, could get everyone in the right mind space. Back, of, back in my middle-aged years. Yeah. yeah. So Mike, you were graduating college around this time, I think. Yeah. Abe Lincoln, uh, <laughs> I think, gave me my degree. He was a speaker. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. That's very, that's yeah. very good of him. Um, Ferris was still a thing back then, you know. Oh yeah. He uh, and I played ball together. Oh, wow. Yeah. How cool. Woodward <laughs> Ferris. What a good guy. Um, okay. So back at that period of time, obviously we didn't really know all that much about medicine. Um, Our perception of pain was it's just a natural part of aging. So as we get older, we experience pain and there's really nothing. I see Mike nodding his head (laughs) Um, and there's really nothing we can do to stop that. And so that's just a natural thing. We're not really going to treat it. And that's just part of life. So that's how we thought about pain in terms of opioids, though. Opioids were used for everything and anything you could think of. There were no restrictions on opioid use. So we were using opioid for things like moder- like mild toothaches. And as Mike mentioned, opioids cause constipation. So if someone had diarrhea, we're like, hey, just give them an opioid. That's going to stop their diarrhea. And so it was pretty much the wild, wild west of opioid use where people were just giving it out for anything you could think of. So yeah, I guess they don't have any 
thoughts on this initial period of our, our story. And so to be honest, so my dad was a pharmacist, is a pharmacist. He always hates it when I say was, cause he's not dead. Um, <laughs> okay. And so even, you know, during their practice, this was still very common to have, you know, behind the counter, you know, anti-diarrheas with mm-hmm. narcotics in it, with opium in it. Uh, you know, even looking at people would put these in for a variety of reasons. You know, one, you know, snake oil salesman, you throw a little opioid in there, uh, it makes you feel good. So you mm-hmm. think it's working. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the original, you know, like Coke products actually had uh, narcotic or opioids in them. Yeah. Uh, so interesting things. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Do you have any additional things to add, Sam? Yeah, I mean, the age before regulation. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. For sure. And we saw what that did. Um, so that was where we started. Now, moving into the early 1900s. So Mike just got his first job, I think, around this time. <laughs> um, okay. So at this point in time, street heroin abuse, as well as opioid dependent, uh, became more common. So we were using these opioids for everything and anything. And we started seeing some of the repercussions of that. So at that point in time, the Harrison Narcotic Control Act was passed, and that was a law that kind of regulated opioid manufacturers. But I'm not super familiar with it. Sam, could you tell us a little bit more about kind of what brought that on? Um, I couldn't give you really the details about it. <laughs> That's okay. Um, no, I can't. I mean, it, it just was one of the first that was um, kind of the first time I think we see addiction referred to as sort of a moral failing. Mm-hmm. Um, in that document. Yeah. And I think that is something that lives with us till this day, right? Some of us still hear people talk about how it's just the person's problem that they're addicted to opioids. And so we'll definitely talk more about that moral failing idea in a second. Okay. So this control act was passed. And at this point in time, both physicians and patients both were pretty against using opioids. They tried to avoid using opioids because they thought that it was dangerous. They thought it was this moral failing that if you used opioids. And so the use of opioids really kind of fell off a cliff and we saw that they were not used very regularly. And then also at this point in time, when patients had unexplained pain, so like pain for a reason that we couldn't really like nail down what was causing it, it was pretty common to call people addicts. So if you had this uncontrolled pain, you were actually just addicted to opioids or people were said that you're faking your pain or those kinds of things. And so that's where this rhetoric really started to come from. So yeah, I guess anyone have any additional thoughts on that piece of the story? I'm glad you used the word rhetoric. Um, (laughs) Actually that we'll get into it maybe later, but that term addict I think should be removed from all of our vocabularies. Um, It has a lot of of connotation, negative connotation. You know, a person is more than just the substances they use. We should Mm -hmm. really think of people first. And that term addict has lots of negative implications, can get in the way of people seeking care. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So what is is the current term that's supposed to be used now? Dependent? uh, Addiction? Or, you know, if we're thinking about the substance, so a person Mm -hmm. that uses alcohol, a person that uses opioids mm-hmm. and uh, more about that. So we're yeah, starting like, more respect with that. Cause I remember there was a transition you know, a number of years ago from calling people diabetics mm-hmm. to a person living with diabetes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And mm-hmm. so don't categorize them, you know, don't make that part of their personality. Yeah. And we call that person first language essentially. So you are a person with an opioid use disorder or something like that. So what am I? So you are a person with more problems than we have time to talk about. 
All right. <laughs> okay. So that's kind of where we were in the early 1900s. And then we had a backlash, right? Because that obviously was not okay. So in the late 1900s, there was this continued kind of phobia of opioids. And so there was likely under treatment of pain. People did not want to prescribe opiates or sorry, physicians didn't. A lot of patients did not want to take opiates. And this was causing a lot of pain and unneeded stress and strife in patients. So at this point in time, there was a lot, and I mean a lot of medical literature written about this subject. And Mike, you probably remember this because this was around the time you said you were teaching some of the opioid stuff. Mm -hmm. So there were case reports talking about people that had this untreated pain where they were in 10 out of 10 pain and we weren't giving them anything. Um, And there was conventional wisdom that opioid use rarely results in addiction. So in kind of this late 1900s period, there was some case reports and some letters to the editor. And so when you hear that, you think very low quality evidence suggesting that people did not get addicted to opiates. Now that's when they're being used to treat pain or something else. So if you're using them Mm -hmm. correctly, you can't get addicted to them. Right. Okay. That was the idea. So one letter to the editor I found said that addiction rates were 0.03% which is incredibly low, but also there was no actual data to back that up. So that was a very interesting claims that were being had. Um, okay. And so then also around that time, the world health organization came out and they had guidance on how to manage patients with cancer pain. So specifically patients that had, you know, cancer pain, they were probably maybe near the end of their life, that kind of patient. And they said opioids were the first line choice for those patients. Based off of that guidance, a lot of physicians said, okay, well, why can't I use opioids for other people that have chronic pain? And so that is kind of where we got into the point of a lot of people that had chronic pain, whether it's cancer or not, were getting opiates. Well, and one of the things that I think we're probably going to have to do an episode on is Mm -hmm. pain Mm -hmm. because not all pain is created equal. Mm -hmm. You know, there's pain from different causes and, you know, opioids are not going to be helpful, you know, in some of those pains. So just kind of that very narrow-minded approach of, hey, if it's pain, use an opioid. Mm-hmm. And trust me, I saw that, you know, in the uh, early 90s, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when we shifted to that mindset. Yeah, yeah. And so- Absolutely. I mean, know. if you think about conditions like fibromyalgia and sometimes different types of headaches, opioids can make the condition worse. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, yeah, exactly right. For sure. Um, and and then- I think there- Good. I was going to say there's there's a lot of other steps, I think, in that uh, little timeline there, Ben. Um, but you're exactly right. I think the attention started with people dying of cancer pain with their pain poorly mm-hmm. treated in some of those articles. And, and right, when we dig deeper into the percentage reported, the problem was these were studies of very, very few people mm-hmm. and usually with a terminal diagnosis. So they may not have left the study with an, a u- substance use disorder, but um, they were deceased. Right, right. So you can't have a substance use disorder if you unfortunately right. passed away of your terminal cancer, right? Right. Because not an ideal outcome. Yeah. At that <laughs> yeah. point in time, we, we focused a lot on quality of life, mm-hmm. uh, you know, comfort care, mm-hmm. you know, and stuff like that. You know, and again, thinking back to those times, we didn't have all the advances in, you know, oncology and some of these other things that we do now where we can actually intervene to make the situation better, not just mask the symptoms. Right. Yeah. And I think a couple of other things maybe happened before physicians as a whole really accepted the use of opioids, right? Just, Mm -hmm. you know, that publishing data, I think it was other entities 
pain societies. I think we might yeah. yep. get into more that contributed. Yeah. Great segue, Sam. I appreciate it. <laughs> so the next thing I want to touch on is the American Pain Society. So this is something that I actually have heard of people quoting during my training, and that is pain is the fifth vital sign. And so essentially calling out that every patient, you should be asking them about pain and you should be trying to getting their pain essentially to zero. That's, that's stupid. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you think about it, I'm in pain every single day. You know, it's, I would like to, you know, as long as I'm functioning, but having that amount of pain, I never expect at any point in my life to have zero pain. Mm -hmm. I call that dead. Yeah. And so I think common conventional wisdom would agree with that. And so I want to bring up just two other entities that were kind of pushing towards this. We really need to treat pain as much as possible. So the joint commission, so the joint commission for our listeners at home is essentially an accrediting body that looks at hospitals and says, you're going to be able to get funding from the U.S. government. And so in order to be accredited by the Joint Commission at this period of time, this was in the early 2000s, you were judged based off of pain scores. So based on how much pain patients said they were in, if they were in a lot of pain, your reimbursement would decrease. So you would receive less money if your patients reported that they did not have controlled pain. So obviously physicians were like, well, I don't want to be dinged by the government. I need to you know, make money to bring into the hospital so that way we can continue treating patients. And so they were treating everybody with these opioid pain medications to try and meet those goals. And then the very last thing I want to bring up here is pharmaceutical companies. So pharmaceutical companies, especially those who are making opioids, were pushing opioids as kind of this humane way to treat people's pain. So there's a lot of advertisement to physicians, a lot of advertisement out there trying to get physicians to prescribe opioids to treat and manage these people's pain. And so all of these things together, I think is kind of what you're alluding to, Sam, that made it so physicians were like, all right, I'm going to start giving opioids to a lot of my patients. Yeah. And I mean, I wasn't in practice back then, like the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm -hmm. Don't um, make it sound but, like it was that long ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, we were in pharmacy but, school at that point in time. So. Yeah, I, I yeah. Was, so, yeah. Oh, my goodness. What I hear um, is it right? The providers were still holding onto that past knowledge and knew that opioids were something to be concerned about. And right, we've known about tolerance for a long time and that things may not be effective. But mm -hmm. so the the advertising part and the marketing on the pharmaceutical companies seems to have had a very significant impact, you know, repeatedly visiting providers um, and mm -hmm. really, really pushing that pain is something that is very serious and should be treated and we should use opioids to treat it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Without an evidence base to point to on that. Right. Yeah. So that was in kind of the early 2000s. And so that led to a lot of opioid for being prescribed, as you can imagine, all these different organizations, all this direct advertisement, people were using opioids a lot. So once we started using all of these opioids, we started seeing that there were actually some very real side effects to using opioids. So addiction is one thing that we're going to talk a lot about moving forward, uh, but there's also a lot of other things. So fatal depression of breathing, we already talked about, so people overdosing and then potentially dying from that. There are some patients that you give them opioids and they actually get more pain, or over time it has less of a pain-killing effect, which... How, how does... That's counterintuitive. What's what's going on, man? It is. That is counterintuitive. Sam, I don't mm -hmm. know if you know that mechanism because I know I don't for like how oh taking gosh. opioid makes it worse. Yeah, yeah. Well, right. Over time, this it is it is an interesting concept, and I'm not 
sure of the biochemical reaction either, but it's literally like a person would be in pain, take the opioid, the pain increases mm-hmm. after the dose. Um, so a little bit less common, but can happen but right along the lines of tolerance, needing more to achieve an effect, but eventually you make it to this hyperalgesia state. Well, is, mm-hmm. does that have something to do with, you know, so opioids, the way they work, they block a receptor. Mm-hmm. And so you you mentioned that there's an upregulation of the receptor, but is there also a um, increased sensitivity of those receptors or does your body kind of try to correct that because it wants to have that stimulation and so they become more responsive to pain? Yeah, I mean, that would make sense. Yeah. For sure. For I, sure. I'm just theorizing. I'm, <laughs> I'm not a pharmacologist, uh, but... No, that's totally fine. But yeah, so we found some of these issues. There's also like hypogonadism, osteoporosis. What's hypogonadism? So that's essentially when you have a decrease in the function of like your sexual organs. Um, So it might be your, you know, gonads or your testes for a male. um, Yeah. Very common. Mm -hmm. We can see a lot of sexual dysfunction, fatigue, Mm -hmm. um, depression even. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, for sure. Um, So, yeah, we saw all of these major issues that were going on uh, during this time. And so just to give you all an idea of how much opioid use increased, in 1997, oxycodone prescriptions were at 670,000 prescriptions during that year. Okay. So I want you all to guess, five years later in 2002, how many prescriptions of opioid, or sorry, of oxycodone were there in that year? 30%. 30%. Not an appropriate answer here. <laughs> I need an actual number. So 670,000 um, in 1997. A billion. All right. We got a billion in 2002. Do you have any? Two million. Two millions. All right. Uh, so it's actually 6.2 million. So we saw a increase of about, what is that? 10 times wow. the number of prescriptions just in five years, which is wild. Um, okay. So. Now we kind of end our story with the late 2000s. So it was at this point in time that we really had uh, the lawsuits that were going on that you all maybe have heard about in the news about Purdue Pharma, who are the makers of OxyContin. So it was at this point in time that they pleaded guilty to federal charges of misbranding and they agreed to pay $650 million from several lawsuits against them about their marketing and pushing of OxyContin in particular. Um, and so this was also the period of time where we started changing how we were thinking about pain. Most prescribers were getting back to the point where it's okay. Maybe we don't want to use opioids as much as we used to. Um, we had a lot of drug overdoses. I'm sure we've all seen plenty of news articles about drug overdoses to opioids and decreased life expectancy. And so this really brought upon the current era of opioid use and pain management in the pharmacy. And that kind of brings us to where we are today. So, yeah, I guess does anyone have any thoughts on that piece or just overall this kind of timeline we've been talking about? No, I think you've done a good job describing it. And, yeah, we get to the late 2000s and we see that now the drug overdose deaths are a leading preventable cause of death and opioids have a huge impact. So rethinking it. Well, and I think the other thing that you brought up is, you know, from this history lesson, there's not just one person to point at. Mm-hmm. To say you did this, 
you know, everybody wants to say, well, the patients were asking for it or they were diverting or the physicians were over prescribing or the mm -hmm. pharma, you know, pharmaceutical companies were pushing their, you know, products. Yeah. Honestly, there's enough blame to go around, mm -hmm. you know, for all of this. And so I think that, you know, I hate when people kind of deflect, you know, the blame to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it can, they blame the legal system, right? Because also while all this is going on, we have the increase in fentanyl and heroin trafficking going on and they blame the providers or patients. Absolutely. Um, a shared problem and it'll take a, a shared solution. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so um, this has been a fantastic conversation. We're actually getting to the end of our time though, for this episode of the podcast. Um, I think there's maybe like five-ish minutes left in the runtime for this. Um, so unfortunately we're not really going to be able to get deep into let's a lot do of the two, questions. Let's do two parts. Yeah. I love that. Awesome. So uh, I think what we'll do is, you know, we'll finish this discussion and kind of like tee up part two mm -hmm. and get into the heart of it. And I, I think that'd be great because I, I think you guys are right. I mean, the more I, remember and the more I think about this, mm -hmm. so many more questions come up, yeah. you know, for this. And, you know, Ben, I was, I know you thought I was ignoring you, but I was actually, <laughs> Andrew was, uh, producer Andrew was out of the room, so I could not ask him to look up uh, the mechanism between, behind opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Okay. And so I looked that up and I found a, uh, uh, a paper looking at opioid-induced hyperalgesia and they say that it's, you know, essentially a, you know, sensitization of the Nociceptors and nociceptors are those your pain receptors? Yes. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Following acute or chronic exposure to the opioids, mm -hmm. and this occurs when the opioid administration results in a paradoxical, which means it doesn't make sense. It's kind of the you know thing that you didn't think enhancement mm -hmm. of the noxious stimuli. Noxious is we could just call that klepsir, <laughs> uh, and they are prescribed to ameliorate. So yeah, it results in that hyperstimulation. Uh, so again, it's one of those things, it doesn't make sense, but it occurs. So, you know, again, these are not the, the be all end all right. for things. And so as we're teeing this up for, uh, part du, mm -hmm. uh, I think that's how you say du <laughs> in French. Yes. Or is that just me being stupid? Duh. Uh, okay. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, and maybe we can th think about, you know, I do want to talk about Narcan. Yeah. And, you know, the role that that's playing and the fact that it now you can walk into a pharmacy and buy it, mm -hmm. you know, without a prescription. I mean, that's crazy. But there's also a stigma with, you know, naloxone or Narcan, right? It's like mm -hmm. if I'm carrying it, does that mean I'm you know, a user? Does that mean I'm condoning use and stuff like that? And the mm -hmm. whole idea of, you know, you can't treat the problem if somebody's dead. And so, yeah. man, Sam, I really want to get into a whole lot of this <laughs> stuff with you. <laughs> It sounds like we're preaching to the choir a little bit. We might be on the same page there. You're exactly right. Everyone's like, oh, well, won't they increase risky use, risky behaviors? And very clearly, there is no evidence to suggest that naloxone increases any sort of substance use or risky behaviors. It just saves a life. Mm -hmm. And it is just the beginning, right? Um, I'm really glad you said stigma. I think mm -hmm. maybe in part two, we'll get into that a lot more. Um, but we have to, the naloxone save a life now so that we can get them into treatment down the line, mm -hmm. um, treatment that they need. And you're exactly right. I, sometimes I'll talk about naloxone, just like a patient with diabetes on insulin, you would always make sure they have glucose tablets, a patient mm -hmm. allergic to bee stings. They would always have an EpiPen. Mm -hmm. 
it's like a fire extinguisher in our homes. We should all have one, know how to use it, but hopefully never do. Um, and that's consistent with the Surgeon General advisory um, statement about naloxone. It, he talks about specific groups, certainly if you're taking opioids prescribed or illicit, but really anyone that might encounter someone. So volunteers, mm-hmm. healthcare professionals, like technically, I think we should all have a naloxone like in our pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it's ready when we need it. No, and I think those are great points that you bring up because nobody desires or makes a decision, hey, I want to have diabetes, Mm -hmm. you know, or hey, I want to, you know, have, you know, anaphylactic allergic reactions. Nobody, you know, desires to have an addiction. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, again, you had in here, it's like, well, it was their moral failings. No, some people are predisposed to having addictive personalities and are susceptible or we know in medicine that your genes you know, affect the way you respond to certain medications, whether it's, you know, you have a very good response to a blood pressure medicine, you know, or whatever. Some people are going to be more prone to having strong responses, plus or minus or pro, you know, good or bad mm-hmm. for opioids and narcotics. And so the fact that, you know, we're not taking this into account and we're blaming the individual is incredibly short-sighted. Yeah, I agree. And I, I would love to have you on for another episode, Sam. You don't have to make a commitment right now, mm-hmm. but I agree that there is a lot of Micah saying, yes, you do have to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, I think I will. I think I will. Okay, cool. And so, yeah, a lot of stuff that we want to unpack, um, but unfortunately we are now at the end of our time together. So thank you, Sam. We really do appreciate you having, having you on here. We appreciate your expertise, especially to clean up everything that Mike doesn't really know about. Um, very helpful. Um, so thank you everybody for listening. Uh, any last minute things you want to tell the audience, Sam, before we close out? I think, no, I think we just scratched the surface today. I For mean, sure. honestly, we we may need three parts. I don't want to commit <laughs> to that yet. Um, but no, just really from what we talked about today, if folks, just everyone listening could right get a naloxone um, and change kind of how we talk about addiction mm-hmm. with people that use substances um, just within the general population with compassion, without judgment mm-hmm. um, and We'll get more about treatment options for pain and for substance use disorders next time. And, you know, maybe on the website, we post something about the Narcan sprays so people can get information about it, uh, you know, and then, you know, point them to their pharmacies. So maybe we can, you know, do a little bit of our role here and put some flyers up in the deli. Yeah, I think so. That sounds great. All right. I need to go grab some pickles or something. I'm I'm really getting hungry over yeah, here. He's losing his electrolytes. He needs those. <laughs> all right. Awesome. Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Sam, for this fantastic discussion. And thank you all for listening to this episode of The Health Deli. Thanks for stopping by The Health Deli to sample some of our wares. We're open 24-7 on Facebook and Twitter at The Health Deli or visit thehealthdeli.com to send us a question or find any of our locations. Please come again. We will be regularly stocking the shelves with fresh content and new wellness specials. As always, we want to give a special thank you to Andrew Tingley and the crew at Ferris State University's television and digital media production program. Until next time, so long from the Health Deli, where the topics are tasty, the takes are fresh, and the discussion is free.